shifting gears now into the Yahuwah Triangle, Adam, Abraham, and the Garden of Eden. Everything I talked about in the previous session was just to sort of warm you up to think outside the box, think outside the ball, <laughs> whatever the case may be. Start thinking, hey, what if we took the Bible literally? What does it say? So let's continue. I'm gonna, some of this will be speculative, just like the previous session was. But as we move forward throughout this weekend, I'm going to get less and less speculative and more and more dogmatic about what I think the scriptures are telling us. So, um, what is the Yahuwah Triangle? Well, I base it on Isaiah chapter 19, where it talks about, In that day shall there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. That word pillar is a little bit deceptive in this case right here. Um, when we think pillar, we think of a pole, Right? And when we think of the pillars of the earth, I think that's applicable. And I'm going to have to actually go back and see if it's the same word used there, because I've seen how English translations... The, I'm a big advocate for parallel Bibles for a reason. I grew up in a King James-only environment. My Bible right here, my preferred study Bible is a King James Bible, but it's a parallel Bible. I'm a huge advocate for parallel Bibles, because most of the time, it's just subtle variations in the way the sentence is structured, and you're dropping the Fs, you know, riseth and whatever, you know, is rises or something like that. But in some cases, you see major differences in the English translations. And that's why, for me, whenever I'm really studying, I got resources up like Bible.cc or Bible Gateway or some of these other resources where I can look at multiple English translations at the same time. Because when I see a major difference in a word, that means I've got to have to go look at the Hebrew or the, you know, Aramaic or the Greek or what have you. Um, and in that particular verse, depending on your English translation, You'll see any, King James says pillar, but you'll see other ones that say monument, others that even say pyramid for that particular word right there. So those was what, that's one of those situations where I'm going, huh, you got all these multiple trans English translations using different words for, you know, whatever that was, was going on right there. So um, that's what initially caught my attention. This structure, whatever it is, will be for a sign and a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. Uh, if you keep reading in Isaiah 19 toward the end, or it's the last few verses in that chapter, it says, In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land. It talks about there being a highway connecting the two, and they're all playing happy together. Has this happened yet? No. I can't think of a time in human history where Egypt, Israel, and Assyria have been playing happy together. So this obviously is a prophetic future tense, right? Verse 25. Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. So I basically put a pin in those three locations, kind of picked cities within them uh, that are prominent in the scriptures, I believe. And that's what forms the triangle. Those are the three points in the triangle. Um, specifically, Giza. I put Jerusalem there, but there's a better location that we'll talk about in a few minutes um, with regard to the land of Israel and um, Babylon. So those are the three points in the Yahuwah Triangle. When I began to contemplate what is this monument that's being spoken of in Isaiah 19, I began to wonder if it was the Great Pyramid of Giza. It's the only thing that actually fits all the descriptions given, uh, and specifically something that's in the middle and on the border of Egypt. When you realize that Egypt was divided in half, upper and lower Egypt, and right where that line is, the border of that line, it's in the middle of Egypt, where you, you have Giza. 
So uh, at first I'm thinking, wow, I found something incredible here. And then I continue to research and there's been hundreds of people <laughs> who've come to this conclusion. I'm like, okay, cool. You know, at least I guess I'm, I'm, I'm on the right track here. Um, there are a lot of scholars out there who have made the connection and believe, as I now do, that that monument or whatever that thing is uh, in the middle and border of Egypt is the Great Pyramid. Uh, I have in disc one of my Yahuwah Triangle disc series, which I have here, it's an hour and a half long teaching. I'm going to just give some of those quick highlights of some of it to uh, tell you what I think is going on with the Great Pyramid. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's the only one still remaining to this day. It's been around for a long time. Many suggest that it was built sometime around 2560 to 2540 BC, which according to my understanding places it in the pre-flood context. Um, I was invited to speak at a secular UFO conference in New Jersey uh, a couple years ago. And uh, it was with the ancient aliens crowd. So <laughs> they had like the people that are not the guy with the hair, the great Giorgio guy, but some of the other guys were there. And um, <clears throat> I was brought in to talk about the UFO phenomena and all that from a biblical worldview. But as part of that talk, uh, one of the guys that was there, Dr. Robert Schock, uh, kind of stirred up the archeologic, uh, archeological community with his findings of the Great Pyramid and the Sphinx showing water damage uh, and showing that this place has been underwater at some point. And so, you know, he was kind of confirming a lot of things that I was looking at about it being, in a, being a pre flood structure. So, um, had some really cool conversations with him and the other speakers about some of this stuff. Uh, it is the only pyramid in Egypt containing both ascending and descending passageways. All the other ones only have, they have only descending passageways. This is a cutaway showing the inside of the Great Pyramid. Fascinating study uh, as you really get into all those things. Although it's missing today, many believe it had a capstone of gold on top, but this is what really caught my attention. That this is secular Egyptologists looking at this thing. They say that it originally had 144,000 highly polished casing stones. Interesting number, wouldn't you say? Yeah, in fact, if they were highly polished, um, it is believed that if you could go to the moon and look back at the earth when it's reflecting sunlight, that you could have seen the reflection of the Great Pyramid shining like a star on the Earth. One of the original names for it was um, Ikhet, I think was the name, which means uh, glorious light. Very shiny object. Who built the Great Pyramid? Of course, the Egyptologists will tell you it's the Great Pyramid built by Khufu. Uh, if you look at the evidence for why they say that, you would laugh. Basically, in the King's Chamber, let me go back a couple of slides here. <coughs> If you look at this picture here, you have the king's chamber right here, and you have these relieving chambers up above it, and like the structure that they say is built that way to keep all the weight from crushing everything down below it. But these are like open areas in here. No, nobody was ever meant to get in there. Nobody was ever meant to see it. The only reason we know that it's up there is because archeologists or, or grave robbers did dig a passageway up alongside of it, and they found openings up here. And way up in one of these relieving chambers that was never meant to be seen by anybody was a scribbled piece of graffiti that some wonder may have been put there when they did that. No proof, nobody can prove that it was done at the time of the construction of the Great Pyramid. This showed a cartouche, which is one of those circular hieroglyphs that represented the name of Khufu. And the graffiti that was written beside it said the Gang of Khufu, or the Khufu Gang. That's all the evidence we have that that was built by Khufu. To me, that's kind of like the evidence that was put forward for 
when we were told that three buildings fell at free fall speed into a pile of ash after two planes hit, uh, and the, the jet fuel that burns only about 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit melted the steel that melts at over 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit for uh, burning for j less than an hour, and these buildings fall into a pile of ash, and they find a passport that somehow survived the fire that melted the steel, and not only was it a passport, but it was the passport of the alleged box cutter toting terrorists that supposedly slammed those planes into the buildings. Yeah, it's 98% we share with chimpanzees, right? People who think they came from monkeys come up with stupid stuff like that. Um, you know, uh, Alex Jones said, what was this thing made of? What were the passports made of? Shards of Thor's hammer! <laughs> you know how he gets all here. Shards of Thor's hammer! <laughs> Whatever. You know, but that's what convinced everybody that 9-11 was done by box cutter toady terrorists was this paper passport that somehow survived the falling of the buildings due to, due to jet fuel. Well, this is as absurd as that is to me. Uh, this idea that something that was, I mean, when you look at all the other structures in Egypt, the, the pharaohs and everybody are very proud of their stuff, aren't they? Hieroglyphs all over the place. This pharaoh did this, that, and the other thing. His whole life story and military career and, you know, conquests and blah, blah, blah. You know, all the other temples and stuff like that have writings and things all over them. But the most magnificent structure ever built and still standing on this earth today, whatever shape it is, the earth, there's no writings, no hieroglyphs, nothing. And the only writing they did find was way up in a relieving chamber that nobody was ever meant to see? I don't think so. When I was looking to see, okay, well, if he didn't build it, who did? Uh, I, I was reminded of a book I read a while back by Patrick Heron called The Nephilim and the Pyramid of the Apocalypse. Um, he didn't buy the idea that maybe the pre-flood patriarchs built it. He believed that Nephilim built it. And it was built as a structure to uh, honor Lucifer as a counterfeit of something in heaven. And I read through his argument and eventually had to disagree with him on that, with the exception of the possibility that the physical laborers that may have laid the rocks could have been Nephilim. But I don't agree with his premise on why it was built and to whom it was to honor. Um, and the reason I don't is because he based his premise that it was Luciferian in origin on not only the Luciferian stuff that we see, like the eye and the back of your dollar bill and the pyramid and all that stuff, but also the so-called air shafts in the Great Pyramid that point to certain stars in constellations, Draco and Sirius and some of these other ones. Um, the stars that, are, that it points to, apparently, are stars that are typically associated with Luciferian ideas and the occult and stuff like that. That is until you read books like The Gospel and the Stars by Joseph Seiss and The Witness of the Stars by E.W. Bullinger. When you read what these two gentlemen wrote, there, there's an original plan that God meant for the constellations, and it tells the gospel. It tells the whole plan of God in the constellations. And E.W. Bollinger divides up the, the 12 constellations and all that into, um, I see the three, I think it's three books with four, it's three and four or four and three, whatever the case may be. He divides them up into books with each book representing a number of, of constellations, telling the whole story from one angle. The next book of constellations telling the story, from, just like the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell the same story but from different perspectives. He say the constellations are telling them from different perspectives, but it's the whole plan of God. And now where the Illuminati, the elite, the occultists will look at constellation like Orion and assign that to 
Nimrod and Osiris, the original meaning of Orion was the Redeemer, Yeshua. And so you see how the enemy basically counterfeited what the original intent was. I don't know that Patrick Heron, he has since passed away, I don't know that he ever read those books. I think if he would have read those books, he would have come to different conclusions. Because if the, if, if the architect of the Great Pyramid is who I think it is, or the people that I think it, they were, then it's telling a whole different story. You can flip almost everything that Patrick Heron was saying and turn it around for a good story where he saw a bad story. Um, but the idea that the, bo- that the stones themselves could have been laid by the Nephilim, I can buy that because, believe it or not, the Temple of Solomon was built by Nephilim. And if you don't believe me, open your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 9 and read who was conscripted to do the forced labor. It was the Amorites, the Hittites, Jebusites, all the same ites, and it even tells you these were the ones that Joshua and the, those guys failed to take out. They were conscripted as forced laborers. So these are the same people that are told that the Israelites were told to utterly destroy over and over and over again are the ones who built the Temple of Solomon. So I'm going, well, if they could be conscripted for that building, why couldn't they be conscripted for this building? You know, when you look through the synchronized biblically endorsed extra biblical text of Enoch, Joshua, and Jubilees, which I've compiled into one volume called Genesis in the synchronized biblically endorsed extra biblical text, you see that um, Enoch was, he was shown a whole lot of things when he was taken up into heaven. Um, and he was to write all these things down into books, uh, and to uh, teach them to his son Methuselah. It says, according to that which appeared to me in the heavenly vision and which I have known through the word of the holy angels and have learned from the heavenly tablets. I know a mystery and have read the heavenly tablets and have seen the holy books. He was shown a whole lot that he was to come back home, put down in writing, teach it to his son um, Methuselah. And these are all people who are of the house of Seth. Well, we have this text right here from Josephus in the Antiquities of the Jews. He's talking about the house of Seth. He says, they also were the inventors of that peculiar sort of wisdom which is concerned with the heavenly bodies and their order. And that their inventions might not be lost before they were sufficiently known. Upon Adam's prediction that the world was to be destroyed at one time by the force of fire and at another time by the violence and quantity of water, they made two pillars. Again, that word can be monuments or whatever the one of brick, the other of stone. They inscribed their discoveries on them both that in case the pillar of brick should be destroyed by the flood, the pillar of stone might remain and exhibit those discoveries to mankind and also informed them that there was another pillar of brick erected by them. Now this remains in the land of Syria and Egypt to this day. That's the, the only thing that fits that description is the Great Pyramid. People who have studied it will show you that it's various measurements and the various things there tell all about the earth and its place in the cosmos and things like that. Now, of course, myself and others have looked at that from the spinning heliocentric ball model, and there are a lot of very compelling things about the pyramid that would seem to indicate that. To my knowledge, nobody has decided to look at those measurements from the circular model, and I would be intrigued to find out what it would show if they did. So I'll just put it that way. When I originally did the teaching, um, all of my preconceived notions and findings were based on the ball, and so that's reflected in that video. But when you realize that Adam apparently had a vision of two destructions of the world, one by fire and one by water. And if the world was destroyed by fire, you know, they had the brick and they had the stone. If, it by, if by water, the brick one would get washed away and the stone would remain. Well, guess which one's remaining? Why? Because the world was destroyed by water, right? So, seems to fit. 
Um, and looking at the pre-flood timeline, this is a chart that I've done in my Nephilim teachings and stuff like that, showing the initial incursion of angels in Genesis 6, 3550 BC and all that. Then, uh, you know, you have the watchers being judged, bound, and buried. We'll get to that in a later teaching. Um, right on the 3,000-year time period, and Enoch is raptured right just prior to 3,000 BC, right around that time frame right there. So it would have been somewhere in here, probably around the same time as the Aztec calendar stone showed up, that Enoch would have come back after his judgment with the watchers and all that that took place, uh, and then instructed Methuselah, and then the house of Seth got together and built the, in my opinion, they were the ones that built the Great Pyramid, or were the, at least the overseers of the building of it. Possibly the stones were laid by Nephilim. The question is, okay, if that's true, then why was the Great Pyramid built at that specific location? Why Giza? Well, when I started to look into what various Egyptologists and other people who have looked into this thought about that location, I kept finding scholars referencing ideas that the ancient Egyptians had that that was the place from which creation began that creation began on the Giza Plateau. This is a book Graham Hancock wrote, uh, Heaven's Mirror Quest for the Lost Civilization. And he talks about that, that, the creation of the world began at that location. It was known as an island. The Edfu tradition talks about that being the place creation of the earth was completed right there. So looking at the various traditions that people had regarding the Great Pyramid, specifically the people in Egypt themselves, the ancient Egyptians, I began to wonder, what if that's true? What if that is where the creation began? We see that there, it's one of three places important to God in the Yahuwah Triangle in Isaiah 19. So could that be, it's speculation, could that be that that was the location from which Adam was pulled from the dust of the earth? Can't prove it, but there's a lot of interesting things that may point in that direction. The book of Hosea makes some interesting links with Egypt and creation, talking about Adam breaking the covenant, Isaiah, or excuse me, Hosea 6, 7, um, and talking about the northern kingdom, um, you know, being caught in their sins and whatnot, it says that they will return to Egypt. Why? Because Israel has forgotten its maker. So as I continued to do the research, I kept finding this idea of origins, creation, things starting in Egypt. You know, may possibly the creation itself, with Adam being pulled from the dust of the earth. We know that Israel was made into a nation, not in the land of Canaan. Israel became a nation in the land of Egypt, Right? God told both Joseph and Jacob that the house of Jacob would come down, 70 individuals, right? And he would make a great nation out of them in Egypt. So that's this whole idea of new things sort of starting um, in Egypt. Speculation, I agree, but interesting nonetheless. Could the Great Pyramid be a model for the New Jerusalem? Now, when you look at the dimensions of the New Jerusalem, most of us probably have thought of it as a cube. I know I did for the longest time. I was a, a cube guy. When you look at the dimensions, sure, I was thinking like the Borg ship on Star Trek, you know. <laughs> um, that it was this big gold Borg ship kind of looking thing, uh, big cube. But there are actually two shapes that fit the dimensions, a cube and a pyramid. And Patrick Heron was the first that I'd ever read that put forth the idea that the Great Pyramid could be a model on the Earth of the New Jerusalem. Um, he put that seed in my mind. I thought, okay, that's interesting. Uh, Doug Hamp was the one that actually pushed me over the edge on that. Um, his, some of his teachings and things that he, he studied out uh, convinced me, yeah, I think the New Jerusalem is in the shape of a pyramid. If that's the case, then Patrick Heron, here's a video of his regarding his speculation on that. 
In chapter 21 of the book of Revelation, John describes a future city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven to earth. John describes this future city, the New Jerusalem, in great detail. Its brilliance was like a precious jewel, and the angel measured it with a golden rod. We are told of all the various stones it's made out of. We are told it has 12 gates made out of a single pearl each, and that the river of life flows out from the midst of it, etc. And at the end of this detailed description, John gives us the dimensions of this future city, and he says its length and its breadth and its height are the same. In today's measurements, that would be 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles high, and 1,500 miles wide. This measurement has led many scholars to believe that the New Jerusalem is a cube, but there is one other geometric model that fits the criteria, and this is a pyramid. There is no question that the Great Pyramid is a truly unique and remarkable, some would say miraculous structure, certainly worthy of being an altar and pillar to the Lord. Taking all the evidence into account, it seems clear that the Great Pyramid of Giza is an earthly representation of the future New Jerusalem, the heavenly city which is to come down out of heaven from God. So when Isaiah spoke about an altar and pillar, he was referring to the Great Pyramid of Giza. And it's this Great Pyramid of Giza which is pointing forward into the future at this future pyramid city as described in great detail in chapter 21 of the book of Revelation. And this future New Jerusalem is pointing back at the Great Pyramid of Giza. There is a direct connection between the two. And when you consider the 144,000 stones and all that stuff in Revelation, I think there's a really good compelling case to be made that New Jerusalem would be the shape of a pyramid. Um, and again, there are a number of other scholars who believe that as well. <clears throat> of course, when I started to contemplate that, well, it looks completely ridiculous on a ball. <laughs> um, in fact, it would, it would wobble <laughs> quite a bit. You know, this is a, I plotted this out on Google Earth. This is a 1,500 mile line on the ball. You got, it's kind of bizarre. And if it's a spinning ball, you've got big problems too because that's the rough scale of what you end up with <laughs> on a spinning ball. I don't know, you know, I'm just saying, <laughs> it may make a lot more sense on the flat earth. Okay, moving on. Finding the Garden of Eden. We know that Adam, wherever he was created, in a place called Eden, he was moved to a, to a garden that was placed eastward within Eden. So, you know, I started to look uh, for the Garden of Eden, you know, we, we see that he's put eastward in Eden. So Eden, you know, a lot of people, we, we say the Garden of Eden, they think that is Eden. No, it's a structure or a, a garden that is placed within the place called Eden. A lot of people, when they try to find Eden, will naturally go to the rivers. They'll try to look up the various rivers and see if they can figure out where the Garden of Eden was. Now, some people argue, well, there's no way we could know because the flood would have messed up everything. And, you know, there's no way we could know because of the damage of the flood. Well, the problem I have with that idea is Moses is writing this about 850 years after the flood. And, um, yeah, uh, it's all written in present tense. You know, the Gihon is the same that compasses the whole land of Ethiopia. The name of the third river is the Hittakel, where, you know, goes through the east of Assyria. The fourth is Euphrates. Peace on it says, it is that which compasses the land of Havala, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good, right? So they're talking in a present-day tense, you know, 
so everybody would know, regardless of what the world looked like before the flood, he's saying, hey, where these four rivers are right here, that's where the garden was. So when you look on a map for the rivers, obviously we still have the Euphrates and the Tigris, or, uh, the Hittichel, up there, and they dump down into right around Kuwait City and the Persian Gulf. There's another, another river, the third one, the Pison, is not a river still in existence today. However, you could go on Google Earth and zoom in and see a very large dry riverbed going across Saudi Arabia. So many believe that that was the Pison. And if that's true, then that's interesting because they all kind of dump into that area right there. So there's good reason why a lot of scholars will point to this area up here as the likely location of the Garden of Eden. Uh, but I think the Gihon throws that whole thing completely out of whack because it says the Gihon encompasses the whole land of Ethiopia. Way, way over here, you know, to the southwest of that whole scenario. And Gihon today goes under <coughs> Israel, the Gihon Springs. Solomon was anointed king in the Gihon Springs. They go under the, the land of Israel today. I actually believe that originally it went through the, the land of Israel and connected with the Nile. I believe it originally connected with the Nile, and if that's true, there's a lot of interesting things. Uh, you could go down some interesting paths on that regarding various activity, like Moses being pulled out of the Nile and you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And the Gihon was known as the Waters of Salvation. So a lot of interesting rabbit trails you could go on on that. So the rivers are interesting, but it, to me, the Gihon throws most of the theories out. So is there another way we could figure out where the Garden of Eden was? Yes, I believe Abraham is the, actually the key. And I believe that we can follow Abraham back to the Garden of Eden. I've got uh, two timeline charts here. This is one of them, the Nimrod-Abraham timeline, because they were contemporaries. Nimrod was born in 1908 AM, or a year since creation. And anybody know when Ab Abram was born? 1948 AM, or a year since creation. Now, a lot of people will say, oh, cool, 1948 AM, Abram was born. So see, 1948 AD, Israel. <laughs> Problem is, would you say as a nation, the nation of Israel is honoring the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Yes or no? No, when you realize in 1948 AM, the same year Abram was born, Nimrod was made emperor of the world. Oh, now all of a sudden the Rothschild-funded <laughs> activity uh, it, it, that is what we call the land of Israel today with the statue of Nimrod outside the Hebrew University and the um, Freemasonic Israeli Supreme Court with the pyramid and the all-seeing eye and Masonic symbols all over it are rather telling that 1948 AD appears to be more in honor of 1948 AM with the uh, crowning of Nimrod as the king or emperor of the world. Just putting it out there for consideration. Imr uh, so I put together this timeline showing uh, their two lives and how they intertwined with each other. When we look in uh, scripture, we see that Nimrod was in the land of Shinar and he had essentially become made king of the world in 1948 AM, a year since creation. This was the same year Abram was born. In fact, Nimrod's evil kingship was a big part of the reason why Yahuwah called Abram out of Ur the Chaldees, just south of Babylon, in the first place. In Genesis 11, we see that Terah took Abram his son and the Lot, the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go to the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. Why did they stop in Haran? Well, you realize that uh, the patron god of Ur was a god named Sin. 
So that's rather interesting uh, in our English understanding of things when we hear the word sin and we think of Abram being called out of sin. <laughs> well, his father was an idol worshiper. Uh, Terah was known for making idols. In fact, he was the chief idol uh, maker for Nimrod. They ran into some trouble uh, w while they were with Nimrod. We see this is backed up also in Joshua 24 too, that uh, Terah was among those who served other gods. Joshua tells you point blank, you know, that he built all these gods and stuff. Well, when they ran into trouble with Nimrod, all he did is pick up shop and move to the next town, which was the other place that Sin was the capital, was the, was the um, capital city for Sin worship. You had Ur the Chaldees being one in the south and Haran in the north. Both were capital cities that worshipped Sin. So all Terah did was pack up shop from Ur because he was having political problems and moved up to another idol worshipping place that worshipped the same god. But what do we see God telling Abram to do? Leave your father, get out of there, right, and, and take off. Anybody know the story of um, Abram and why God thought he was worthy of being chosen to be called out? What he did with his father's idols? There's a cool story in the book of Joshua where uh, it actually tells you that during the time of the Tower of Babel, um, Abram was hiding out from Nimrod and he spent time living with Noah and Shem for a while and then he comes back home and he sees his dad worshiping all these idols that he made with his own hands and and you know Abram's thinking all this through this doesn't make any sense why are you guys worshiping this stuff so he has his mom make up a really nice dinner and everything for the gods lays them out in front of the idols because you know he, presumably the gods will eat it right well they, they don't eat it so he gets mad takes a hatchet and smashes up all the gods in his father's courtyard and yeah <laughs> smashes them all up and then he puts the hatchet or whatever he used in the hands of the biggest god. And uh, daddy heard what was going on and came in there and flipped out. What are you doing? How did you just, why did you destroy all my gods? What's going on? He goes, I didn't do it. He did. <laughs> Pointed to the big god with the, you know, still had the axe in his hand or whatever. And his dad's like, what are you talking about? This, you know, I can't do it. It's made of stone or wood or whatever. And, and Abram's like, yeah, hello, McFly. What are we doing here? You, know, you made this stuff. Why are you worshiping it? You know, I think God just really saw his heart. Here's a man who's on a legitimate quest for truth, and he just wants to know who the real God is. He spent time with Noah and Shem, and had had enough. And God said, hey, you know what? I can work with this guy, but you're going to have to leave your dad. So we see that he leaves the land of Haran and he, to go to Canaan, but basically God says, start walking, and I'll stop you when you get there. He doesn't really tell him where to go. So when he passes through the land, he gets to the place of Shechem. That's where God stops him. God stops him in Shechem. I'm a visual person, so I love to, you know, put things down. I, I found this map somebody else had done on, um, I just did a Google search. This shows the path that Nimrod, I mean, excuse me, Abram took when he was fleeing from Nimrod, going up through the, the valley there, stopping at Haran, coming down into the land of Canaan, and is stopped in Shechem. Why Shechem? Well, if you do a keyword search on Shechem through your Bible, you're going to find a lot of really cool stuff there. Um, not only did God stop Abram there and say, okay, take a look around. Whatever you see, it's yours. You know, this is the promised land. Yay. Um, it's the first plot of land owned by the house of Abraham, right? It was bought for a, a hundred pieces of silver there. It's also where we see that uh, Dinah was raped there by Shechem, the man for whom the city was named. The, the city Shechem was named after the individual who raped Dinah. And of course, we know the story with Simeon and Levi there. When Joseph has the dream, right? 
that got him in trouble. He has a dream about everybody bowing down before him and all that. Um, after that, uh, his father sends him to go check up on his sons, right? His sons were supposed to be tending the father's sheep in Shechem. The word Shechem means diligence. Well, when he gets there, he finds out that his, that his brothers aren't in Shechem, diligently keeping the father's sheep. They went to Dothan. Well, the name Dothan means double sickness. So they went from the place of diligently keeping the father's sheep to the place of double sickness, where they would plot to try to kill their brother. Of course, you know they, they sold him into slavery, right? In the, in the uh, Genesis text, we see that he met a certain man there that told him, no, they went on to, to Dothan. But when you read uh, Joshua, it tells you that that certain man was the angel of the Lord. Who's that in the Old Testament? Yeshua. Many believe that Yeshua was showing up as the angel of the Lord in various places. So that's rather interesting, that story, when you think of it in that context. Um, of course, after the Exodus and 40 years wandering in the wilderness, uh, the children of Israel crossed the Jordan. They were told to go to Shechem. This is where it gets really interesting. You know, they spent the 40 years in the wilderness, all that, and they're getting ready to come into the land, but you get towards the end of Deuteronomy, he says, okay, when you get in the land, you've got to go to Shechem, divide half the Israelites, put them on Gerizim, and take the other half and put them on Mount Ebal, build an altar to the Lord there, right, and, and inscribe on it the law, on it, right, and pronounce the blessings and curses, the blessings on Gerizim and the curses on Mount Ebal. So I, this is where some things started to click for me, and as I was thinking about the implications of that, um, Sheila was listening to a um, teaching by Jim Staley on the Torah portion Re'eh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, R-E-E-H, to see, and I just so happened to hear the part that I'm going to play for you as I was walking by. She was in the kitchen, I just was walking out to go do something, I'm like, what did he just say? Hit rewind, play that again, check this out. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 27, it says this, then Moshe, Moses, and the elders of Israel charged the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. So here it is. So it shall be on the day when you cross the Jordan into the land which the Lord God gives you that day, that you shall set up for yourself large stones and coat them with lime. And write on them all the words of this law, okay? And that word law is Torah, okay? Write on the words of this law, the Torah, which means instructions, when you cross over so that you may enter the land which the Lord God gives you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord the God your fathers promised you. So it shall be when you cross the Jordan, you shall set up on Mount Ebal these stones, as I'm commanding you today, and you shall coat them with lime. Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal, right there in the center is the city of ancient Shechem. Okay, this is a narrow passageway. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to tell you the story. What Yahweh said is he said, I want you to go in. I want you to take the Ark of the Covenant. I want you to take half the tribes and I want you to stand on half of them on Mount Gerizim. And I want you to take the other half of the tribes. And I want you to stand on Mount Ebal. And he says, I want you to proclaim the blessings. While I'm proclaiming the blessings, I want you everyone to look to Mount Gerizim. And when you proclaim the curses, I want everyone to look at Mount Ebal. Right in the middle between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim is a natural amphitheater. It's absolutely phenomenal. It's, it's a natural amphitheater. It's a natural like valley. It's kind of off in the distance where the horizon is there. And that's where they stood. Right in the valley so everybody could hear. All, all however many there were. A couple of million people. This is Joshua's altar. This was a spectacular, gorgeous, 
altar. Right here between these two mountains is a derrick at Shechem where God's people were there and on one side was the blessings, one side was the curses. He's using visuals to get his point across. Joshua builds, builds an altar, uses natural stones. The limestone is put around it for a reason because limestone is malleable. Ma limestone you can write on. It, 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 you understand what I'm saying? It's a soft stone. You can only write on something that's soft. And he wants to write it on a heart of flesh, vellum, limestone. And he says, I want my Torah to be written on your heart. They departed and they went to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan, the same exact route as the Israelites are at right now. Abram passed through the land of the place of Shechem. I just showed you that. As far as the Teremith tree of Moray, there it is. So this is the very first, excuse me, very first time that we have someone stopping at the tree of Moray. What happens? The Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to Yahweh who had appeared to him. Are you kidding me? This is 400 years, ladies and gentlemen, before Joshua shows up with the Israelites in this exact same place. Now see, we don't live in the land, so we don't make these connections. But Abraham, that, what, 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 what was the covenant made from? What happened that day? Did he give him a can of Pepsi and say, drink, let's pray, you know. What's that? No? What, what happened that day? Something was cut in two. An animal was cut in two, remember? And two halves, and what happened? Abraham was put to sleep. And he went through the middle, did he not? Right here, ladies and gentlemen. There's a reason that Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim are standing the way that they are. Because they are standing as a witness. 400 years later, the altar that Abraham made and the picture... Why do you think that he had half the tribes go on one side and half the tribes go on the other? And the tabernacle, the temple, the Ark of the Covenant is right dead center in between. Because this is the exact place where Yahweh walked between the two halves. Now, I hadn't made that connection, but it filled in a piece of the puzzle of what I was already working on. Because I had seen that uh, in Psalms... In Psalm 60, verse 6, and Psalm 108, 7, it says that God divided Shechem. Right? And if you look at Shechem on Google Earth, it looks like it was originally a mountain range that something went through it <laughs> and maybe did a figure eight in the middle of it and carved it out in the shape of, you know, something like this where you have this natural amphitheater there. Now, he had taken it from Joshua and, there, and the Israelites are there, but 400 years prior, God had cut the covenant with Abraham there, and I had taken it a step further back than that. I believe that something else took place in the same location. But let's uh, continue with some more bullet points first. The city, uh, one of the city of, of, of refuge was in Shechem, Joshua 21, 21. This is where uh, Joshua gathered all the tribes and elders of Israel and made a covenant with the people at Shechem. The bones of Joseph after the Exodus were to be brought up and buried in Shechem. The conversation that Yeshua had with the Samaritan woman at the well took place. Many believe this is a commentary right here saying that this was probably the same location where that happened. Well, there's another connection with Adam and Shechem in the book of Hosea. 
But like Adam, you broke my covenant and betrayed my trust. And he talks about people being murdered on the road to Shechem. Why are all these connections constantly going back to Shechem? It is my belief, after doing this research, that that location is ground zero in the Garden of Eden. That's where the two trees were. That Gerizim represents the location of where the tree of life was, and Ebal represents the location of where the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was. That's where the first covenant was broken. So God brought Abram there and said, okay, let's try it over again. <laughs> I'm gonna, when did he, first time he killed an animal? First time God killed an animal, when? Because of Adam and Eve, right? Right, so he killed an animal there and clothed them, didn't he? Yeah. Then when he cuts a covenant with Abraham, there's another animal, he walks through it, um, and you have the covenant of Abraham, and then you have Israel coming in as a nation from the land, says to stop in the same location, divide half, put the, the blessings on Gerizim, which would have been a blessing if Adam and Eve took of the tree of life first, right? But instead, they took of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, didn't they? And they were cursed. So you put the curses on Mount Ebal. That's my belief. I think scriptures are telling us through a series of clues and bread crumbs that that's why this location is very important to God. Now, if it is true that Adam was pulled from the Giza Plateau and placed eastward within Eden into a garden, I believe that Adam showed up probably in Jerusalem. I think that's where he ended up and where Eve was pulled from him in Jerusalem. I think some of the things with the crucifixion and all kinds of stuff tied into that may, uh, may give us the, the significance and importance of Jerusalem. But there's clearly some kind of significance going on with Shechem over and over and over again through the Bible. So I believe that you know if they were placed in Jerusalem, they eventually made their way through the garden to Shechem, and that's where everything fell apart. <laughs> that was ground zero. Is there evidence that the land we now call Israel, is there evidence that that is in fact the garden other than what I've just said? Yeah, I believe there's a number of places that certainly seem to strongly insinuate at least that it is. When Ad Abram, uh, Abraham and Lot were traveling together and they were having problems, they had to split up, right? We see in Genesis 13, Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld the plain of Jordan. It was well watered and everywhere uh, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord. So there's a comparison right there. Joel chapter 2 talks about blowing a trumpet in Zion, right, sounding the alarm. And it says the land before them is as the Garden of Eden in Joel 2. We also see in the book of Ezekiel talking to the house of Israel. Uh, it says, I'll put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You shall keep my judgments and do them. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. Is it the land of the Jews? Is it the land of Israel? Whose land is it? It's God's land. He gives them the privilege of living there, doesn't he? But it's his land. Right. And as you continue reading, this land was desolate, is now become like the Garden of Eden all over again. So I think these are some interesting connections. Also, Isaiah 51, 3, the Lord will comfort Zion and will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the Garden of the Lord. So I think a real good case can be made. And there's others who have put this connection together as well. As I was doing some research on this, I found somebody had created this graphic right here as the, the full borders of the land that was promised to Abraham. I have a problem with this one, though. You'll see that they're following the same logic that I went down, that the Gion probably connected with the uh, Nile at one time, and that the uh, dry riverbed here that is the, probably the Pison, that's what gave them the green area right there that they're calling the, the total land uh, that was promised to them. I would say it's probably more like something like this, because if it was the way it was just depicted, then you have them wandering in the promised land 
during the time of the Exodus. So I believe that you probably need to draw a line more straight across like that from Giza to the Persian Gulf. This is not the, the promised land and the land above it. <coughs> Regardless, I think you know either the shorter part or the bigger part, that's the Garden of Eden. Um, this is a good place to stop with this one. If you have any questions, you know, we can do that for a few minutes. Any questions? Wow. They're still reeling on the flat earth, probably. All right. Cool. Well, if there's no questions. I have a question. Yeah. In uh, other videos you did on this, you, you were kind of leaning towards uh, the pyramid being like a guard, weren't you? Or no. Did you change? Or? No, I never thought that. Doug Hamp said that once in a, something, that, okay. that, but I was like, no. No, I've always said that my impression of the Great Pyramid was that that was a X marks the spot of creation of Adam. But that um, when I followed Abraham through the Shechem connection there, and when I heard that, what, that Abraham, the, the covenant with Abraham that Jim Staley was talking about may have been cut there. So you're saying like before, like when he created Adam, when it says he placed him in the garden. Eastward in Eden. So you're thinking that's Yeah. Because what's interesting about the Great Pyramid is it's aligned true north. And so really if you align true north, then anything to the east would be eastward in Eden. Um, we'll talk about in some of the other sessions when they were booted out of the garden, it says they were sent to the east. So you have eastward, but then you have to the east. And if you go almost directly east from Shechem, you end up in Babylon. So, uh, and I think that's, there's a pattern. As I started to look at this Yahuwah Triangle idea, the pattern is basically illustrated perfectly for us in the book of Hosea. But that there's something new that originates or is created or renewed or what have you in Egypt, goes from there to the land of Israel. And you're allowed to stay there until you disobey the house rules. Leviticus 18 says the land will vomit you out. Where do you get vomited? Well, you end up in Assyria of Babylon. And we saw that with both the northern and the southern kingdom. So I think that that's the pattern. Um, and if you learn your lesson, you get to come out of Babylon and go back to the promised land unless, it, unless you really need a do-over. Judah was out for 70 years in Babylon. They learned their lesson. They got to go back. The northern kingdom dispersed in 721, 72 uh, or 722 BC, whatever it was, didn't. You know, they didn't learn their lessons. So, they, their initial judgment was 390 years. I, um, Leviticus 26 says, if you don't learn your lesson, you get seven times the judgment. So, 390 times, you know, seven is what 2730, I think. Okay. And that, when when we figured that math out, I believe when I was traveling around, as I started to get on the page of the Torah. I kept asking people, because I came on this page in 2009, and everywhere from Cape Town, South Africa, to Canada, and all over the United States, I'd ask groups like this, when did you first come into an understanding of the Shabbat and keeping the feast and getting back to the Torah? More often than not, seven out of 10 people were telling me 2009, 2010. Well, when you do the math out, that's when the seven times the 390 ran out. So I believe what I'm now calling the Ephraim Awakening I mean, there were forerunners, there were others that have been around for decades, but the mass, if you go on 119's Fellowship Finder, just exploded from 2009 forward. Um, but when you spend that much time in the exile and punishment, Hosea says you got to go back to Egypt. Why? Because Israel has forgotten its maker. So, and then the pattern starts over again. I have a question. Some, uh, some rabbinic literature uh, actually... Put Shechem as being the valley of decision. 
And it also talks about how Thackeray took the, or, or Shalmaneser, whichever one took Assyria, took the northern ten tribes captive, that they actually went between them two mountains yeah. as they were marched out. Yeah. Yeah, if you heard what he's saying, that when the Assyrians came and took the northern kingdom, that they marched through that valley and took them out, which would be rather poetic if that's the case, because it's a reminder to the house of Israel, guys, I mean, come on, we spent half the tribes on one half, blessings and cursings, why did you go the route of the cursing, you know, and they were marched right out through the same, the valley of decision, as you said, yes, sir. Uh, I'm saying it was possibly the physical labor may have been. Okay. Are you, are you suggesting, because scripture says that, and there were giants in those days, but it doesn't really kind of speak too much. Are you suggesting that something survived perhaps inside the pyramid? No. No, no. Uh, um, but that's the next session. The next session, it's, it's a longer teaching that we're going to do after dinner. Uh, it's all about the pre and post flood Nephilim. Uh, so we'll we'll save that for that one. But no, I don't believe anything was hiding out in the Great Pyramid or anything during the flood. You talk about what's in the sarcophagus. Or the sarcophagus was empty. I know. But when, you well, I yeah, I speculate um, because it says that Enoch wrote I think 360 books or something like that, and we only have Enoch one. I don't talk about first or second or third Enoch. Those are Gnostic texts that I don't really give much credibility to. But you know, we we read in the ancient literature that he wrote 360 books and it's speculation but I, I believe that possibly that could have been the, the library that held all 360 books of Enoch uh, would have been a great place to put them <laughs> you know, considering what was coming so I don't know but it's always been empty. Uh, Kent Hovind points out that the inner dimensions of the uh, sarcophagus, or what, not really a sarcophagus but the, the coffer in the king's chamber um, the inner dimensions of the coffer are the same as the exterior dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant. So another interesting you know, piece of trivia. Uh, there's a documentary, I forget the name of it, on Netflix. Um, they believe, uh, there's a, a growing belief that the Great Pyramid may have been a big energy uh, generator of some sort. That it was never meant to be a, a grave of anybody. You know, these are secular Egyptologist stuff looking at it, but they're saying it could have been a hydraulic um, energy creator of some sort. So interesting. Everybody's speculating at this point, though. Yes. Uh, if uh, if the Nephilim uh, had have constructed after the flood works, like you said, maybe did the pyramid or the temple, then they would have to somehow came through the flood. Yeah, that's sort of what he was asking. Yeah, that's the next session I'm going to talk about because that's a big question. We know there are Nephilim before, right. and we know about Agu Bashan, we know about Goliath, we know about the Amorites. You know, where what what's up with them? So yeah, that's the next session. Yes. Okay. 
Yeah, the angel with the flaming sword. Um, if it is true that they were booted out to Babylon, you know, if, they, if you go almost directly across from Shechem east, it's Babylon area. Um, and I originally drew a circle because it says the garden was eastward in Eden. So I was trying to think of how big Eden was. What was Eden? And, you know, I was just speculating, but I took a compass and put the needle on Giza, and I extended the pen out to just west of Babylon and drew a circle. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking, you know, maybe this was what was known as Eden, because a whole lot of stuff took place, biblically speaking, within that, if you look at the whole circle right there. And it encompasses a lot. You know, you got Greece and Rome in that circle, a part of, you know, going down into Ethiopia and going all the way out to just west of Babylon. And the reason I made the border west of Babylon is because if they were kicked out and they put a sentry guard to keep them from going back in, that might have been an interesting location for that to take place, which w might explain why after the flood they went right back down the plains of Shinar to that location. You know, um, that maybe even though there was a flood, there might have been enough similarity in the topography that would cause them to go back to a known place before that. Many speculate and believe that Babylon was actually built on top, uh, the Tower of Babel, I should say, was built on top of uh, another structure that had been destroyed in the flood. So, so, you know, after all that's destroyed and, you know, the trees are either removed, taken to heaven, or just buried, whatever the case may be, once the trees were gone, there was no need to keep the, the lightsaber dude. <laughs> you know. Yeah, he's got it in Tanzania. Yeah, I, Stan Daly is another researcher. He he tries to make a really compelling case for Garden of Eden being in Tanzania, but if you look at where he's got the rivers, I mean, I'm like, really? I mean, he's got the rivers. He's got the Gion going around India, and I'm like, dude, it says it's going around Ethiopia. So what are you doing? And and, and it says that in a post-flood context. So he's trying to make the case in the pre-flood world that you know the continental shift and everything changed, and you know, I don't I don't buy his argument at all. Uh, especially when you, because I always wondered why, of all the places on earth, is that little sliver of land so important to God? My feeling on it is because that is and always was the location of the garden where fellowship with him was broken and where he wants to bring us back to fellowship too, uh, you know, in the end when it's all Yeah, I suspect that they were, you know, they, it would have been an interesting thing to see and I would suspect that people would, you know, if they, especially if they knew in later generations, wicked later generations of that, that there was a tree of life there, that they could live forever. There may have been, you know, I, I, there's not, we don't have a whole lot of writing to tell us exactly what was going on in that time period from creation to the flood. But I think it's spectacular. I mean, when anything you've ever thought of, of like Atlantis or, you know, I think the pre-flood world was uh, probably more sophisticated than we are. But they were doing things without all the technology that we have to rely on. They were just doing it, you know. So I would suspect they're probably Nephilim and others trying to make their way back in to get a chop a you know chop a bite off the, the tree of life. Good. On that last graphic you had, where you chopped off the water portion, you just made a straight line across. Yeah. How many miles is that across there? Have you? You, you know, I haven't. Um, I do have another graphic. I didn't put it in this slide though, showing the footprint of the New Jerusalem. And yeah, wait, I'll have to see if I can pull that up. Um, it's uh, it's pretty cool because that slide, I mean that um, the footprint of the New Jerusalem. If it was placed right over the center of the 
um, that circle, you know, the circle I made with the pinhole in uh, Giza. If you put the center of the square base right over the circle, it fit perfectly. And I didn't plan that. I, I created that circle in 2009 because I just felt like that's what the Lord was showing me. And then in 2014, when I put this whole teaching together, I thought, I wonder what that would look like, you know, if I put the base down on it. And when I put the base down on it, it fit perfect within the circle. So I was like, wow. But that excludes Babylon. When you take the center of the square, instead of putting it over Giza and slide it over Jerusalem, take the new Jerusalem, put it over Jerusalem, it includes Babylon. Well, that's what you get in Isaiah 19. Blessed, blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. So I'd have to see if I could find that picture uh, to show you that. But Also, you mentioned uh, earlier about the, the word um, pillar in Isaiah. Right. I looked it up. It's a different word than the one that's used in Job. I thought and speculated that it would be because um, of the way it's, you know, pillar is pretty consistently translated pillar when it's regard to pillars of the earth. In fact, it's always, as far as I can tell, uh, used that way. But that other one, man, you got you get pyramid, you get monument, you, you know, you get lots of different things. So it had to be a different word. Thank you for the confirmation on that. I was gonna say, I thought before when I was watching your video on this, you were kind of going down a direction of what was in that sort of complicated state of books that Enoch supposedly written. Um, if during the time of the 1700s or around that time frame that was raided and taken away so that when science eventually got in there to figure it out, oh, it's empty. Now you have an amazing boom in technological advancements that occurs starting around the 1700s up until now. Exactly right. They've got all the information and they can do it. I mean, it seemed like you were kind of going down that road. That, yeah, I, know, I stopped short of saying that, but yeah, that you're tracking exactly with my mindset on it. Because there's no question, and I'll talk about this with the, well, I'll talk about this tomorrow. But clearly something changed. I mean, for 5,000 years, it was pretty much beasts of burden and horse and buggy. And then all of a sudden we hit the 20th century and it's planes, trains, automobiles supposedly going to the moon, sending probes out to the forest regions. I mean, computers. I mean, what happened? Something major changed. Yeah, well, I mean, when you look at we, a lot of the things we're doing today are things that the Book of Enoch says were taught to men by the watchers. Right. So could that have been in the books of Enoch? Likely. Or could it also, because it also says that um, in the book of Jubilees, um, Shem, or Faxad had a son that's missing in the King James. Uh, uh, the offspring in the table of nations, he's not in the King James, but in the Septuagint, he's there. Uh, our Faxad had a, a son named Canaan, not the same as Canaan, who after the flood found some writings of the watchers and he sinned because of it and hid it away from Noah. What was that all about? I don't know. Well, you know, I'm talking about how the watchers taught people how to kill a baby in the womb. Yeah, abortion, right. And all of a sudden, it's the 20th century, abortion has just skyrocketed. Exactly. Yeah. Here, before, it always existed, but not like it does today. That's the graphic I was trying to find. That's the footprint of the New Jerusalem, and then this is a circle that I originally came up with on it. And so if the square was over... The center of the square was over Giza. Babylon's excluded from being within its uh, borders. But if you move it right over Jerusalem, then it fits. And the other thing, there was a there was a pre-flood flood. Joshua records in Genesis it says it was in the days of uh, 
Enosh that men began, began to call upon the name of the Lord. When you read that in Genesis, that sounds great. Wow, men are calling on the name of the Lord. No, that's not. When you look at the, the, the rabbinic commentaries and stuff, and the, and the Torah commentaries, and in fact, when you actually look at the Hebrew words that are used there, no. It, they began, began, the word that's used for began is defiled. It's used elsewhere as prostitution, sexual defilement. They began to defile themselves and basically think of themselves as God. And there was a pre-flood judgment. And it says that God flooded a third of the land with the Gihon River. Well, if Eden really is the circle that I created here, and the Gihon is right here, then a third of the pie chart right here is the Mediterranean Sea, <laughs> or thereabouts, you know, roughly. So. It's funny you said that. I watched a documentary the other day. He's uh, a, uh, a Bible scholar, but he's also a, a geologist. He was doing tests in the waters off the coast of Israel in the Mediterranean Sea and found that there was actually dry land. There's proof that there was dry land there. Originally. Originally, pre-flood. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, and if you read the Joshua account of the pre-flood flood, uh, taking out one-third, that may explain some of the legends of things like Atlantis and, you know, things of that nature. You know, I know some people want to put Atlantis beyond the Pillars of Hercules out in the Atlantic, but there's a lot of others that think that some of these more advanced places that we hear about, like Atlantis, were in the Mediterranean area, so. Fascinating stuff, though. I mean, it's, just, it's really fun to, to research. Anybody else? Hey, Sir, yeah. The floating city? Yeah. I don't know, man. That that is fascinating. I mean, it's hard to believe anything you see on the internet, though, because, I mean, with if you have less than three hundred dollars, the the off-the-shelf software that you can get today, you can create anything. So, I mean, when you see these things, you know, unless you actually see it with your eyes physically, and even then. Things can be, you can be deceived. So I don't know what to make of it, but it, the, the footage is really interesting. I had a question. You had a reference there, and I'm not sure where the quote came from. I, I think it was from Josephus regarding the Pyramid of Giza. Yeah. And it had the two stones, and Hillary. I think it ran across this, one of brick and one of stone. Right. Did the, the Pyramid of Giza have any inscriptions on it? Well, that's a good question. Um, the pyramid itself, I mean, there's no writing anywhere other than that scribbled piece of graffiti they said they found. So it, the structure itself is what everybody's reading. You know, it's, it's like all the measurements of the pyramid are telling a story. So that would be a good question to see, you know, what measurements indicate, you know, maybe the pointing of some of the constellations. I don't know. You know, I think you'd have to do an in-depth study of the gospel and the stars to know what the stars are telling first. And then how it's aligned to the stars and the belt of Orion, the whole Giza plateaus uh, lines up with the, the stars of Orion's belt. So I think in the context of all of that, it may be telling the story, but there's no like, this thus saith the Lord, this is going to happen, kind of, you know, that I'm aware of. You know, call it riddles, the, the riddle in stone. So. Anybody else? All right. So what is that, 5.30? Want to say 6:37? Come back. Yeah, whatever, whatever you want. Um, the next session's about probably gonna be about two hours long. So. Back at seven. 
Seven to nine. Does that work for everybody? Yes? No? All those opposed? Okay, everybody's for it. Let's go. Thanks so much for watching. I hope you enjoyed this video presentation. If you did, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, like the video, and share it on your favorite social media sites. There's a lot more to come, so stay tuned, and we'll see you back next time.